but go ahead and let's turn again to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4. The Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4. Just to remind you, we are currently in a series on the subject of repentance. And Matthew 4 verse 17 is the verse that we're digging into, seeking to unpack, seeking to understand. And we're using the rest of Scripture to help us understand and interpret Matthew 4.17 rightly. And so here is what God tells us in Matthew 4 verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we have already seen in no uncertain terms that repentance is at the heart of the Bible's message. God is speaking to us through the Bible, calling us to repent. This is the way of salvation. Repentance is the only way of salvation. But we can't repent if we don't know what it is. And so last time we looked to the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which has a great little statement that brings together all the major points that the Bible teaches about repentance into one statement. And so we're using that as a guide to help us understand this biblical doctrine of repentance. So what is repentance? Let's read our statement again from the London Confession. This saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person, being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit, to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. Now, so far we have looked at the fact that repentance is a gospel grace. That is, repentance is a gift from God. No person can repent savingly unless they're enabled to do so by the Holy Spirit. And repentance is only able to bring us salvation because Jesus Himself went to the cross and bore punishment in the place of all those who would turn from their sins and turn towards Him. It's only because of the cross that repentance can lead to salvation. Repentance is a gospel grace. We also saw last time that repentance must include the sight of our own sin. This is where it all begins. We cannot turn from our sins if we're not willing to acknowledge our sins and own up to them. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But simply acknowledging our sins with our brains, with our minds, is not enough. True repentance also includes a sense of the vileness of our sins. We can't simply state, yes, I am a sinner and here are my sins. There must be a sense that that our hearts are affected. When John speaks of confessing our sins, he's speaking of a heartfelt confession. 
we must have some kind of a sense of just how terrible our sins really are. Without this, we will never, ever truly turn from any sin. Therefore, we ended last time by looking at four reasons that we should hate our sin. Four reasons that we should hate our sin. And these are four reasons that we should consider every sin to be vile and terrible and something to be rid of as soon as possible. And we looked at the first two last time. First, you should hate your sin because of its very nature. Because of its very nature. And then second, we saw you should hate your sin because of the one your sin is against. And so tonight we pick up with our third and fourth reasons to hate our own sin. And here's number three. You should hate your sin because of its effects on your own soul. You should hate your sin because of its effects on your own soul. When we think about what sin has done to us in the past, and when we consider what sin is capable of doing to us today, we ought to hate it with a passion In Romans 3, Paul teaches what sin has done to the entire human race. Just one sin, one act, Adam's act of rebellion, was enough to make all his posterity, now more than 7 billion children of Adam living on this earth, who are every one of them unrighteous at their very core because of one sin. One sin led to that. We are not just sinful on the outside. Sin turned humanity rotten on the inside. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're sinners in our our hearts. Paul teaches in Romans 3 verse 10 that there's none righteous, no, not one. And then he goes on to explain, using Old Testament quotes, that this unrighteousness has affected our minds. If you want a reason to hate sin, think about what sin has done to this mind of yours. Natural man's ability to reason was okay. Uh, I'm sorry, natural man's ability to reason works okay when he's far away from the things of God. But when natural man has to think about the things that have to do with God, when natural man starts to think about eternity or sin or heaven or hell, all of a sudden our reasoning gets really mixed up. And it's because our hearts are wicked and don't want to face up to the truth. In other words, sin in our heart begins to affect our minds so that we're not fair and balanced. Right? We have an agenda. And so we begin to rationalize sin. We begin to justify sin. We come up with excuses for why our sin is okay. We can be reasonable when talking about other people's sin, but suddenly we're talking about ours, and all reason goes out the window. Paul goes on to explain that this sin inside of us has affected not only our minds, but our wills. It affects the way we talk. It affects our actions. To summarize what Paul says in Romans 3, we would say this, sin has broken the human race. Sin has broken the human race. It's like a computer virus that gets a hold of your computer and somehow manages to affect every program on it. Your programs still kind of work, but not nearly like they're supposed to work. Similarly, every part of our lives has been debased and brought low by sin. You you still kind of work. 
but you don't work nearly like you were supposed to work. Your brain, your tongue, your hands, your feet, all of you was created to bring glory to God and you were to find joy in the happy service of Him. Sin has robbed you of this. And only through Jesus Christ can we begin to rediscover it. Even as a Christian who has come to Christ, sin still has terrible effects on your soul. Yes, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are nailed to the cross of Christ. Heaven is in your future. Nevertheless, you still have plenty of reasons to hate your sin. Consider what sin does to your experience of your peace with God. Sin never changes the fact that you have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 1. That doesn't change. In the courts of heaven, your peace with God is settled. But when you sin, it begins to affect your experience of peace with God. It causes us to begin to to grieve and be troubled before God. It causes us to be ashamed before Him, especially after everything He's done for us, that, that we would do these wicked things. And so our communion with God begins to get affected. Often, after we've sinned, the last thing we want to do is spend time in prayer. When we've just sinned, the last thing we want to do is go have fellowship with God. Here is a glorious, glorious gift. The gift of being able to spend time with Almighty God Himself. Prayer is the most amazing gift imaginable, and sin makes us not want to do it. That's a reason to hate sin. Every sin takes us another step away from Christ's likeness. Do you love your Savior? Is Christ precious to you? Are you like Judas, who valued Christ at a measly 30 pieces of silver? Or are you like the woman who broke the alabaster flask in order to anoint Jesus with oil because she believed He was worthy of the most expensive thing she could buy. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you say, as is said in the Song of Solomon, He is altogether desirable. He is altogether lovely. Can you say with the bride in that book, I am sick with love for Him. Do you know what it is to be so overcome with love for Jesus and to have such a desire for Him to return so that He can take you to Himself that sometimes it just makes you sick you want Him to come back so much? Well, if you know what it is to love Jesus in that way, don't you want to be like Him? Especially since His great delight is to look upon people who reflect His own character back to Him. Don't you have a burning desire in your chest to be holy as He is holy, to walk worthy of Him, to reflect His beauty and His glory in your life? Well, dear friends, every sin we commit takes us another step away from Christ-likeness. And it's worse than that. Every sin we commit has a hardening effect on our souls. Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed that once you've committed one sin, 
suddenly it becomes easier to commit it again? Or have you ever noticed that committing one sin leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another? It isn't simply that we take one step away from Christ's likeness. More often, when we give in to one temptation, we end up taking 20 or 30 steps away from Christ's likeness. It's like a sin is like a, a steep staircase where you, you, you think, all right, I'll take one step. And the next thing you know, you're, you're, you're going head over heels down the steps. John Owen said, the indulgence of just one sin opens the door to further sins. Dear friends, if you love your Savior, this is the very opposite of what you want. Doesn't it cause you to grieve to think of your Savior looking upon you and seeing you in your sin? Friends, if it does not cause you to grieve to think of your Savior who loves you and died for you, seeing you in your sin, there's something wrong with your soul. Sin hinders our usefulness to Jesus. If we love Christ, we want to see our our family members come to Christ. We want to see our friends one to Christ. We want the nations to know this Savior that means so much to us. So we want to be useful to Him. We want to be useful to the purposes of God. We want to be a choice servant, one that He uses tremendously to show the world how great He is. And every time we sin, we're hindering our usefulness to Christ. Sin hinders our desire to be useful. Sin hinders our willingness to be useful. Sin gets in the way of our witness to other people. I think this is the reason why for many people, the the hardest people to witness to in the world are those in their own family. Because these are the people who know them best. And that means they know your sin. And you know... Well, if I start talking to them about Jesus, they're going to remember that time I lost my temper and said those things. If I start talking to them about Jesus, they're going to remember I did this and I did that. And so they're going to know those sins of mine and it's going to be an obstacle to me being a godly witness. We ought to hate sin with a burning hatred because we love Christ with a burning love and we love people with a burning love and we want to be more useful to Christ. Number four, number four, you should hate your sin because of its effect on those you love. Because of its effect on those you love. Look at what sin does to our relationships. Look at what sin does to our marriages. See how sinful desires and sinful words and sinful attitudes, they wreak havoc in our homes. If we think my sin only affects me, we're foolish. Because that's not the truth. Our sin affects those around us in incalculable ways. Our sin brings pain to others. Our sin makes us a bad example to those we love. You say, no, nobody even knows about my sin. It's just, it's just one little sin. It's just me. It doesn't affect anybody else. If it hardens your heart, if it takes you a step away from Christ-likeness, if it interrupts your relationship with God, doesn't that affect how the example you're going to be to others? Doesn't it affect the witness you're going to have? Doesn't it affect the tenderness of your heart towards others? Every sin we commit 
has consequences for those in our lives that we love. Parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, don't we want our lives to point our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren to Christ? Don't we want to see, don't we want them to see through us how great God is and how wonderful is His Son? Do you understand that when you sin before the eyes of younger ones, it affects them? When you speak angry words, when you speak discontented words as if Christ isn't enough for you, when you speak words of anxiety, words of worry as if Christ isn't in control, when you speak badly of other people, when your children see that you you never read your Bible, you never pray, they notice. And it affects them. Our children are affected as much by what we don't do as by what we do. And if we say that the Word of God is precious and communing with God is wonderful, but our children see that we don't ever do it, that says something to them. It is possible for you and for me to be saved from hell and yet for the sins that we commit to lead other people there. And so if you don't hate sin for your own sake, hate your sin for the sake of those you love. Now, leaving our list of reasons to hate sin, I want to move to our fourth point concerning repentance. We're we're seeking to define repentance. And so here's number four. Repentance includes the humbling of oneself. Repentance includes the humbling of oneself. Uh, The statement from the London Baptist Confession, it speaks of the true repenter humbling himself for his sin. It even uses a term that you would never hear in our modern pop culture, self-abhorrency. Self-abhorrency. Just as plants, by nature, tend to stretch upward as far as they can to get a little more sunlight, So human beings by nature tend to stretch themselves as high as possible. The tendency of the natural human heart is to exalt self over God. The tendency of the natural human heart is to serve self, honor self, protect self, make self the God of all. If self is wounded, I'm angry. If self is praised, I'm glad. But everything revolves around self. Repentance is the exact opposite. Rather than exalting self, repentance humbles self to the dust. Instead of loving oneself, instead of boasting in oneself, the penitent person actually begins to abhor the terrible things that self has done. Uh, To put it another way, one mark of true repentance is that a person humbles himself to the dust, thinking low and not high thoughts of himself. This is one great mark of a Christian. A Christian is someone for whom self is no longer on the throne of his or her heart. God is now on the throne of the heart. God is lifted up. The Christian longs to see God honored, God exalted. To your name, O Lord, to your name be glory. Not to our name, to your name, O God. 
What wounds the honor of God causes the Christian to grieve or become angry. What praises the honor of God causes the Christian to be glad. Here is something that is at the very root of the Christian life, humbling oneself before God. But it is so contradictory to our modern age. The spirit of our modern age is that there is absolutely no reason for anyone to ever feel shame. Doesn't matter what your choices are, doesn't matter what actions you've done, the only sin in our modern culture is to be ashamed of something you've done, to not be bold about it. The issue that's right on the pages right now homosexuality. According to our culture, homosexuality is not a sin. But if you're ashamed of your homosexuality, now that's wrong. In the view of our culture, the truly free person is the person who can flaunt before all their immorality, head lifted high, denying that there's any real morality at all. The worst thing in the world is for you to be ashamed of something. And yet in the Bible, shame can be a very good thing. Many, many people have had good things happen in their lives because they felt ashamed. Indeed, it is sin not to be ashamed of wicked thoughts, wicked words, and wicked deeds. Our world says that we need greater self-esteem. The Bible says we need for ourselves to be pummeled to the dust. Only when we have died to ourselves can we live to Christ. Only when self is brought low will we find true joy and happiness. In the Christian life, this is the paradox. The way up is the way down. If you want to be exalted, humble yourself before God. Lower yourself to become a servant of others. Consider others more important than yourself. Say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners. Uh, Let me read you two passages from the Bible that are completely out of step with our culture. And they're completely out of step because they speak of self-loathing. They speak of detesting one's self. And yet, in both of these passages, this is lifted up as a good thing. So first consider the example of Job. Job. Throughout the book of Job, we find this man griping at God. He's charging God with having been unfair to him. But then God speaks and helps Job at the end of the book to see himself in a proper light. All of a sudden, Job is brought face to face with the awesome majesty of God. In that moment, Job, suddenly aware of how small he is and how sinful he is compared to this holy God, here is how Job responds. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of one's ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. See the the connection? I despise myself and repent. I despise myself, Job says. And by the way, that's considered the breakthrough moment of the entire book of Job. 
That's, that's the verse that the whole book is leading to. That's the moment we're waiting for. What's going on with Job? What, what's God bringing him to? Here it is. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And the psychologists and the pop gurus of our day cry foul, right? No! And Oprah and Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz, and they join together. and They say, no, no one should ever despise themselves. That's so unhealthy. But in the Bible, it's only by coming to the place of despising oneself that we come to truly see how amazing it is that we're loved by God. That He would give His Son to die for this? That's amazing grace. If we don't come to the point of despising ourselves, we will never turn from self to God and be truly saved. Now, Herman, we are not only to hate and grieve over specific sins that we commit. More than those, we're to hate and grieve over that part of us that still has sin within it. We're to hate the old man that still lives within us and which is fighting to return. That old man within us can never return. The Holy Spirit has made us a new creation. That old man within us is headed to utter defeat. The Bible calls that old man within us self. And we must put the old man to death if we're going to follow Christ in newness of life. The other passage I want you to hear is Ezekiel 36 and verse 31. Ezekiel 36 verse 31. This is God speaking of the day when His Holy Spirit will be poured out upon His people. He's speaking of new covenant days. He's speaking of today. He's speaking about us. He's speaking of Christians. And what does God say through Ezekiel is going to happen in those New Testament days? Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. In other words, here is the mark of a born-again Spirit-indwelt, forgiven child of God. Self-loathing. Now, we are not speaking here about hating one's complete self. I want to make sure I qualify this a little bit. Just a little bit. I feel like I call it a little bit. You are a human being created in the image of God. You have dignity because you were created in the image of God. As the apex of God's creation, there is reason to love yourself in the sense of treating yourself with value and dignity. Okay? Self-loathing that leads to something like suicide is not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about hating all that you are. We're talking about hating that part of you that still rebels against God. Do you see the difference? As a Christian... You are a new creation. At the core of who you are, you love God, you're trusting God, you want to follow God, but there's still that part of you that is so strong within. Self, that's what we're hating. That's what we're putting to death. The Bible calls it self-denial. Walter Chantry says this. He says, Every step of progress in sanctification brings the Christian back to that dreadful battleground where many a tear has been shed and many a drop of blood has been spilled. 
If you are in Christ, this is a familiar scene. There before you on the battlefield is that grisly old enemy to your spiritual progress. And he's standing astride the path of obedience to Christ. It's self. The monster cries out daily to be served. He challenges the dominion of the Lord Jesus. He opposes devotion of time and energy and love to the Lord. But this is a strange war that we may win only by feeling ourselves the painful blows that we give. Every denial of self is keenly felt. How we would love to change the scene of combat. But on every occasion, when we are serious about advancing in righteousness, we must contend with self. Self Self-denial happens as we actively work to humble ourselves before God every day. So I want to give you an illustration of this. I want to point you to Charles Simeon. Uh, Simeon was one of the great pastors of England in, um, during the late 1700s and then into the early 1800s. Uh, Simeon was known for his commitment to the Word of God and his commitment to the people he served, uh, his sacrificial spirit. Uh, back in 1989, uh, John Piper put together a presentation on Charles Simeon uh, to help others understand this man and what made him the godly man that he was. And he pointed out that Simeon made it a point to regularly, daily, humble himself before God in his own eyes. He practiced what is called self-humiliation. That is, he intentionally would bring back to his own heart and to his own mind his sins. And he would remember his sins in order to keep himself humble before God. Piper said this, Simeon was utterly unlike most of us today who think that we should get rid once and for all all feelings of vileness and unworthiness as soon as we can. For Simeon, adoration of God grew only in the freshly plowed soil of humiliation for sin. Simeon actually labored to know his true sinfulness and his remaining corruption as a Christian. Listen to Simeon talk about this for himself. This is an example I think we should all learn from. Simeon says, I have continually had such a sense of my sinfulness as would sink me into utter despair if I had not an assured view of the sufficiency and willingness of Christ to save me to the uttermost. And at the same time, I had such a sense of my acceptance through Christ as would overset my little bark if I had not ballast at the bottom sufficient to sink a vessel of no ordinary size. In other words, listen to this. Simeon says that if he only kept his mind on his own sinfulness, he would fall into despair. If that's all he thought about was his own sinfulness, he would fall into despair. But because he kept Christ in view... He knew he was a forgiven sinner and he was able to rejoice. But he said at the same time, if all I ever thought about was Christ, if all I ever thought about was Christ's love for me, I would begin to get a little prideful. Look at how special I am. Look at how great it is that Christ Christ loves me. He says, but no, because I keep my sins in view, I'm able to still remain humble as I marvel at Christ's love for me. 
he made the comment that while the Bible tells us to forgive others, it never tells us to forgive ourselves. I thought that was a provoking comment. How often does our culture teach us, you've got to learn to forgive yourself? He says, don't forgive yourself. Hold on to your sin and then hold on to the grace of God and keep them both in view so that you can rejoice in Christ and be humbled before Him at the same time. Uh, this is what Simeon said after he had walked with Christ for 40 years. So now we're learning from, a, from an old saint who had walked with the Lord. And, and if we had time for me to tell you the trials he went through, he went through some amazing trials that would have sunk a lot of us. And God upheld him. Here's what he says. He said, With this sweet hope of ultimate acceptance with God, I have always enjoyed much cheerfulness before men. But I have at the same time labored incessantly to cultivate the deepest humiliation before God. I have never thought that the circumstance of God's having forgiven me was any reason why I should forgive myself. But on the contrary, I have always judged it better to loathe myself the more in proportion as I was assured that God was pacified towards me. There are but two objects that I have ever desired for these 40 years to behold. The one is my own vileness, and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I have always thought that they should be viewed together. By this I seek not only to be humbled and thankful, but humbled in thankfulness before my God and Savior continually. So church, I'm not calling us to a life of despair in which all we see is our sin. That's not the life of repentance. Okay, I'm calling us to a life of joy in which we are daily humbled by seeing our sin but also strengthened and encouraged by seeing our Savior. If we lose sight of our Savior, we're going to despair in our sin. But if we lose sight of our sin, we're going to diminish our Savior. We must hold the two together. True repentance includes the humbling of oneself. And this must be an intentional daily practice. If you don't work to keep yourself humble... Pride will grow in you. So subtle. So subtle. An implication. There's an implication of this I want us to see. And it's this. Repentance and self-defensiveness cannot peacefully coexist in your heart. Repentance and self-defensiveness cannot peacefully coexist in your heart. And you know what I mean by self-defensiveness. It's the opposite of humbling yourself before God. It's seeking to defend yourself before God, right? It's pride coming to expression as we give reasons to God of why what we did was okay. Yes, God, I committed that sin, but you've seen all the pressure I've been under. It's making an excuse. Yes, God, I committed that sin, but you're the one that isn't helping me out. Playing the blame game. Yes, God, I committed that sin, but I'm not sure that it actually qualifies as a sin. Right? Kind of playing fast and loose with sin. Yes, God, I committed sin, but but that was the last time, I promise. That was the last time. I'm going to change tomorrow which is justifying your sin through a promise that you probably can't keep. 
All of these are forms of self-defense that we put up before God. And as long as we're saying things like that, as long as we're praying things like that, we are far from true repentance. We see this in our relationships with other people, and especially with other Christians in our lives. Just as God draws near to those who are humble and own up to their sin, godly people draw near to those who are humble. But too often, we find ourselves bucking against those who love us most. They come and they bring us that gentle word of admonishment that Christ commands them to bring if they love us. And our first response is to defend ourselves. Our first response is to give reasons. And and maybe we begin by making excuses. And then we begin by blaming other people around us. And then we begin by playing with definitions. Are you sure? We find all kinds of ways to practice self-defensiveness. Mount Hermon, true repentance and self-defense are at odds with one another. One will always weaken the other. They will never stay content in the same heart. Like two pit bulls circling each other, seeking to take the other one down, a truly penitent spirit and a self-defensive spirit will be waging combat in your soul until one destroys the other. We are called to do all we can to strengthen the spirit of repentance and to put away our spirit of self-defensiveness. If we are in the right, God will defend us. If we are in the right, God will defend us. And if we are in the wrong, then it's good that we've been rebuked. The more we indulge in self-defense, the more we trample any gasps of repentance in our soul. Richard Owen Roberts goes so far as to say this, whenever a person is seemingly repentant and yet busily defends himself, you can be sure the repentance is not genuine. So Mount Hermon, we must not put up any defense of ourselves before God or before others when it comes to our sin. Instead, let us stand before God and before others exposed, acknowledging our every transgression, willing to bear whatever reproach will come our way. And if we do this, we will find that God will draw near to us and that He will forgive us and that He will bring us ultimately to heaven. There may still be consequences for our sins that we'll have to endure in this life. But we'll find when we enter heaven that every sin and every consequence that used to cling so tightly to us will have been completely left behind. And there will be no consequences of your sins that remain in heaven. So let me close this way. Brothers and sisters, in obedience to the command of Christ, let us work to bring about the death of self-worship. Let us lay ourselves in the dust. Let us work with all our might to humble ourselves before God, and in doing so, let us embrace our wonderful Savior who strengthens us in faith, strengthens us in holiness, strengthens us with His amazing love. Amen? Let's pray.